and welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Deeper Listening Podcast. My name is John Prue, and I'm here with my co-host, Justin Bruce. We want to help you discover new music from bands that you already know and bands that you don't. If you've caught our first two episodes, you know we're not technically music experts, but we are pretty big music nerds, middle-aged dads who enjoy discovering music, whether it's new stuff or, in the case of Funkadelic Part 1, John, stuff from 1970 to, what was it, like 1972? We went way back in Part 1 of Funkadelic. So by digging into Funkadelic's metal catalog, we're going to use the idea of deeper listening to give the songs and albums that you know context and to find the hidden gems that make being a music fan so rewarding. This is going to be the perfect primer if you're like me and you were new to Funkadelic or you're like John and you've heard him for years but maybe hadn't heard everything or hadn't heard everything a ton. Uh, We're going to talk about their uh, changing guitarist, how disco started to influence their sound as they moved toward the mid-70s. The goal of our podcast to walk away knowing more than we did before we started and have some fun in the process. So let's do some more deeper listening into Funkadelic. Then we get into 1973's Cosmic Slop, which has a little less polish. They return to a crunchier sound, but they still have the Motown elements. This is one of those instances where Eddie Hazel wasn't maybe officially in the band, but sure sounds like he's making appearances on a lot of these tracks. And they have upbeat songs about love, but mixing in, of course, with darker elements. Like it's 1973, so uh, we're talking about Vietnam because the Vietnam War has just come to an end. There's a track about that. There's more moral type songs uh, about right versus wrong. And then we also cover crazy, campy, sort of taboo, romantic misadventure, which is about the most G-rated way that I can describe. <laughs> uh, uh, was that no compute? <laughs> I'll let, let folks who are listening look into that one. Again, we've just got a lot happening on this album. And even if it's not you know, necessarily like a masterpiece, uh, we've got a lot of really, really, really great songs here that stick with you when you wake up the next day after hearing it, including the opener, Nappy Dugout. Which you and I were both like, wait a minute, is this, uh, what's the meters, yeah. right? It sounds like 1969. Yeah. Yeah, Sissy Strada, and that's, you know, George Porter Jr.'s masterpiece bass line. You know, it's it's so recognizable when you hear it anywhere else. It's, you know, it's something that he was the he was the founder of, of, of that sound and that line. And, you know, and that's something that what a great thing to be known for, because <laughs> Sissy Strut is amazing. And then we uh, and then we get into the next song, which was, you know, I, I believe was was a highlight for you. I liked it. It was it was called You Can't Mi- You Can't Miss What You Can't Measure. And this is an interesting song. I would be interested in hearing the original because you know, it's basically a song about the lyrics say, sitting here with a broken heart, wishing you'd come home, sitting here with breaking hearts. I just can't go on, but it's sung in such an upbeat way. Sitting here with a broken heart, wishing you'd come home, sitting here with 
Some of the verses you know, talk about like, oh, the house is flooding due to all the tears I'm crying or I'm chewing off my fingernails one by one. Like it's, you know, dude is heartbroken, but it just sounds so upbeat that it's a lot of fun. And then we get into the Vietnam song, March to the Witch's Castle, uh, which has this military sort of march in the drums and it's got that classic Eddie Hazel kind of overdriven guitar. It's a spoken word track, but it mentions February 12th, 1973. So I had to Google that because that was referencing 600 prisoners of war kind of coming home on that date uh, from Hanoi following the Paris peace accords, which ended the Vietnam war. February 12th, 1973. The prayers of thousands were answered. The war was over and the first of the prisoners returned. Needless to say, it was the happiest... Kind of like how Pearl Jam evolved later in their albums with their anti-war song. You know, it's not just uh, peace is good, war is bad. This is sympathetic to soldiers. Uh, and, you know, not only what they had to go through when they were fighting in Vietnam, but also what they had to come home to. And we always hear about how they were not welcomed back in America the way that perhaps they should have been uh, in accordance to all the sacrifices they made and the bravery that they had displayed fighting on the other side of the world. Um, so I think it's kind of cool that here's one instance of, you know, giving credit where credit is due and talking about kind of how complicated life was for people who had made this sacrifice it's so heavy what you're going through and then and then they tackle it they tackle a really heavy topic in a way that that you can that you can hear you know and and again another example of them not being afraid to 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 tackle really any subject and then we get into the title track cosmic slop and I've said this a few times already, is the biggest earworm. It reminded me of like a, a scary movie where the bad guy is doing a jaunty little like back and forth dance. <laughs> and that is what comes across to me. And that's actually not totally out of line with some of the lyrics. Seems like the sustained Eddie Hazel kind of guitar, not sure if it's him or not, kind of coincides with the darker elements of the song. I mean, it's basically a guy talking about his mother calling out and praying for forgiveness for the awful things that she's had to do to support her family, which is so, so, so heavy. You know, there's definitely enough things that are going on that it stays interesting throughout. Um, if I remember correctly, the, the, the runtime on this song is fairly long. Um, I think that it kind of goes on for a bit, which a lot of Funkadelic songs will do. And it's one of the few bands that, you know, can essentially not be improvising and play a nine minute song. And I'm pr perfectly cool with it. And the interesting end to Cosmic Slop is that the singer is saying, I can hear my mother call, and he repeats the line over and over and over and kind of sounds more and more pained as he goes along. So it's an impactful, kind of weighty song, which 
is a really big contrast to No Compute, which I had referenced as, uh, um, let's say, uh, a misadventure of perhaps uh, a slightly adult nature. And I don't know if I can really get into it any more closely than that, uh, but this is kind of one of those funkadelic songs where if mom was in the car, I'd probably fast forward through No Compute. Yeah, the, the kids won't be listening to this one, um, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. It's interesting how they pair the tracks together, right? Because this one, you know, there's a very clear message and no compute. And then it goes into the next song, which is kind of like about a relationship, right? That's, that's, that's gone a little bit astray. I did definitely see an arc thematically between Cosmic Slop and No Compute and This Broken Heart. Uh, and that we're, you know, talking about love in its various ways, shapes, and forms. But you know, this is one of those like slightly more produced tracks that has plenty of strings. Um, but there's, even though it's traditional, it has like a little bit of a distorted tinge to just the overall sound. A lot of these songs about relationships and love that's maybe on the way out, uh, it's a lot of fear-based kind of lyrics from from the perspective of the singer. Hey, are you mad at me? Is everything okay? What's wrong? I kind of think that's cool. And again, gets back to that idea of just being true to what you're thinking and perhaps trying to remove some of the ego from the equation. Oh, for sure. I mean, and completely relatable. Like who can't relate to that? You know, like when a relationship is, has gotten rocky and you know that it's that it's wrapping up essentially and thinking about all of the things like, you know, like, well, what what is this? You know, they, they, they find a way to, to, to kind of talk about that in a way that I, I thought it was very relatable. And then the final couple of tracks here, Trash A Go-Go, which we both loved. Great guitar melody, full band groove. You know, this particular song, uh, I believe, listening to the album a couple of times, this one kind of emerged as, as probably my favorite cut on the on the whole record. I think if the live version of Cosmic Slop had been on Cosmic Slop, it would have been my favorite. But with the studio version of Cosmic Slop being on Cosmic Slop, Trash A Go Go, I believe, ended up ended up uh, being crowned uh, the champion in, in my head. I'm on Team Cosmic Slop all day long, live or studio or the radio edit version, which is also at the end of some of these streaming services. And then the final track, uh, Can't Stand the Strain, kind of similar lyrics to This Broken Heart about it seems to be a relationship that's coming to its conclusion, but it's upbeat, bright vocals, big chorus and clean and clear instrumentation. This is one example where the words, you know, boy, I'm sad this relationship is coming to a close is in contrast with the music, which is very positive. Just another tool in Funkadelic's toolbox where we can make the music and the words match up, or we can do the total opposite to communicate our point. For now, we're going to get into 1974 and uh, we're, going to, we're going to talk about the album Standing on the Verge of Getting It On. Um, I've alluded to this uh, in the last two episodes, and uh, this is my favorite of the Funkadelic catalog. 
for me, I love I love Maggot Brain almost as much as I love this one. This one is just my personal favorite. So on this album, Eddie Hazel's guitar work really like just makes me feel things. I don't I don't know a better way to say it than that. You know, feel things like deep things, right? Like you listen to what he you listen to what he's doing, and it's and for me, it's something that it works its way into my bones. I was introduced to this album by a friend of mine named Dan Patterson in 1997. Uh, Dan and I would talk about music all the time. We were both transplants uh, to Louisiana. Um, He was a little bit older than me and he was a huge audiophile. So he actually is somebody that deserves a lot of credit in introducing me to music beyond just Funkadelic, several other things. This album for me really was a, was a total standout. I think that what it was is that, you know, at, at 18, when I was listening to this album, like I wasn't like mature enough to really understand why Maggot Brain was so good. And I remember thinking when I heard the Maggot Brain solo at the time, it was like, you know, it's like, it's a good solo, but it's kind of slow tempo and things like that. And I just wasn't, you know, that was, that was a dumb kid. That's <laughs> the best way to put it. When you fast forward to Halloween of 1998, I went to go see uh, Widespread Panic at the at the UNO Lakefront Arena in New Orleans. What I remember is that in the second set, the band came out and they covered Swamp by the Talking Heads. I knew what it was, but it, there was a few other people that were kind of milling around in the area that I was in that were familiar with the song. But then uh, they broke into Red Hot Mama. And they took that into Superstition and then back into Red Hot Mama. And I really felt like I was the only person in the arena that knew what they were playing. And I can remember uh, talking to the other people that were in the audience with me and and explaining what this was and what album it was from. And uh, it was one of those moments where I was, you know, a kid still essentially, but felt super cool because I knew what the, what the band was covering when, when other people around me didn't, when we really get into it, you know, the, the, the album starts off with, with that song with Red Hot Mama. And uh, you know, there's, there's a spoken word intro. And to me, it's got just one of the best grooves of any song, of any song that I can really even think of. It's one of those, it's on a playlist that I have saved. That's like, you know, like the bangers playlist. It's the playlist that I go to. Like if I need to get into a better mood, like that is the playlist <laughs> that I, that I immediately go to is that one. And Red Hot Mama is on it and will always be on it. need to add our theme song to your bangers playlist i assume that's bangers <laughs> with a z at the end and I, here's a question for you on its surface i think all right widespread panic kind of like a southern band uh you know funkadelic even though they're from you know just new jersey outside of new york city uh at least red hot mama definitely taps into that like southern vibe i mean they mentioned louisiana this feels like southern rock uh but like taken up a notch or something must have been a perfect cover for a widespread it really was. And it was something that for me, it, it, it took me off guard. It was like, you know, it was almost like seeing your teacher in the grocery store, you know, <laughs> where it was something, it's, it just seems so out of context to hear him go into it, but it was, but it was really well done. And, uh, and, you know, and, and their Halloween shows are similar to other bands with, you know, in Halloween where they'll, they'll put on a lot of covers, you know, I don't know exactly how many Panic fans were Funkadelic fans at the time until this happened, but I think that Widespread Panic is very similar to Fish and to the Grateful Dead and to other bands that are in the jam band community in that they really introduced the listeners of that band to new music. 
some fans and all and all of those genres can really get stuck listening only to that. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, myopia. It's a quote a friend. <laughs> quote a, a very good podcast. Once upon a time, and isn't it cool how when you really love a band, I mean, you take their suggestions pretty seriously. I mean, when you're playing Red Hot Mama, first of all, it is a banger. I mean, any I feel like widespread, especially must have just knocked it out of the park. But that's like the perfect cover song and it's a really great start to this album it is like energetic to the max the chorus of this song the hook is just so contagious and then all of the guitar work that's in this song is is you know to me is just spectacular i love the you know as far as as far as the up-tempo solos are concerned i mean this is this is eddie hazel at his finest you know when when you stick around to the end of the album there's a there's a song it's called Vital Juices, which basically they turn the fader down at the end of Red Hot Mama. And for Vital Juices, they just turn it back up. And it's the remainder of the solo on the end of Red Hot Mama. And it's just Eddie Hazel just going off. And it's amazing. Track two, Alice in My Fantasies. My big takeaway from here is it sounds like a Rage Against the Machine song was killing in the name of. I was listening and this happens to me a lot where I'm like, I think I hear this melody. But then I shake my head and I say, nah, nah, I don't think so. But I feel like Rage Against the Machine definitely got some inspiration here from Funkadelic. And of course, those guys, what was that, the mid-90s? They were cool enough. I assume Tom Morello was listening to some Funkadelic back in the day. Oh, he had to have been. And, and when I listened to that, I don't think that it was that they borrowed inspiration. I think that they just took the line and just and, and recycled it. I mean, it seems like it's almost note for note. And uh, I mean, great lick. I can understand. I can understand anybody wanting to take it and, and do something else with it. Standing on the Verge, which I love. I, th- I think my second or third favorite Funkadelic album, although it's a really tight race between the top three. This is the first album to where if I'm like playing it in the car with the kiddos in the backseat, I'm like, all right, let me track by track survey the scene here and make sure we're not getting into any <laughs> undesirable territory. But it's like 1974. So I just assume, you know, we're even wilder and even crazier than we were in the early 70s certain tracks on this album i think if you if you put out now would uh would would cause a, a a decent amount of outrage it would not be the best idea to put on the spoken word intro to red hot mama you know it would not be the best idea to hear the the spoken word intro to alice in my fantasies jimmy <laughs> probably want to leave that one off the playlist when you get into it and listen to to the you know to what's going on musically in these songs i mean they just rock you know and they're very well constructed very well put together and i believe that Eddie Hazel, and I know that we've talked about him a bunch, but he needs to be talked about. You know, Eddie Hazel is is one of the one of the all time greats. And to me, you know, I, I think that we talked about this a lot in the in the last episode. But I just I feel like that he that he does not get near the credit that he deserves for you know for the for the guitar work that he's done. So this is something where I believe he has he shares more songwriting credits on this album, I believe, than any other. And I think that he co wrote everything on it. And I think that's yeah why we both just love this album so much is it's got his fingerprints all over it. And at times they are weird fingerprints, but I mean, <laughs> it's just really impressive what he's able to do. Uh, contrast Red Hot Mama and Alice in My Fantasies with track three, I'll Stay. And it's like we do this, George Clinton. Let's step back 10 or 15 years and kind of skip backwards a decade. I'll stay. 
clear piano. Uh, this reminded me of '93 uh, uh, Reba with uh, like a long tray sustain guitar uh, over the peak because there's this long guitar sustain underneath these lyrics. But this is kind of in Funkadelic's uh, parlance, uh, like a classic love song, although it's about kind of uh, with reservations, maybe waiting around for a relationship to hopefully course correct. And that's a theme that I feel like we catch a lot with George Clinton is this like, okay, yeah, all right, I'll stay. I don't know if this relationship is the best for me, but uh, I'm not going to tell my friends about it. It's, it's kind of an interesting insight into uh, perhaps his brain attached to his heart, attached to his outlook on relationships. Maybe I'm overestimating or reading too deep into this though. No, I, I don't think that you are. And I think that, I think that all of those themes are definitely explored. I mean, and there's obviously there is the side of George Clinton and the other songwriters and Funkadelic that is just overtly sexual. And then you have the side of their brain that is mystic and spiritual. And, and then you also have the side of their brain where they write about, you know, heartbreak and they write about, you know, these weird nebulous feelings like they're talking about an I'll stay where it's like this weird kind of, you know, this is, we know it's not right. Not really sure what to do. I mean, I guess we'll, I guess we'll wait it out, but you know, I, I kind of get the impression with that one where it's like, okay, you know, it's probably not going to work out, but I don't have anything else going on. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to continue doing this. And I just think that it, it speaks to something that how do you, how do you go about describing those feelings? And I think that the way that they do it is partially with the lyrics, but to your point, the guitar that's underneath the lyrics really speaks very, very fluently to that strange feeling. You know, it's like, because it, it, to me, the, the guitar parts are almost like it's, it's like it's dragging out. The guitar part is doing it in a very good way, but this relationship I feel is not like, is not doing it in a very good way. But I think that it's another, it's another way that the music really speaks to the tone that they're trying to set in, in the music that, that, that they're playing. It's a really, really great song. And yeah, if I had to sum it up in one random word, I think it would be forlorn. The guitar kind of communicates that and so do the lyrics. I kind of want to skip ahead to what might be the, the biggest earworm in the catalog, Standing on the Verge, the title track. And holy moly, uh, I actually asked our audio guy at work to play this because he takes musical suggestions, but I failed to ask him to play the radio edit which you can find at the end of the album if you're streaming because there's again a weird spoken word pitch shifted thing going on but after 30 seconds it does kick in This is just the biggest hook. I love it. I've been driving around in my car uh, with both my two-year-old and my five-year-old, and they've said, what What are the words? And I can confidently say, oh, we're standing on the verge of getting it on. What does getting it on mean? Just like you're about to do something. And I feel like this is a hype track. Like This gets me hyped every time I hear it. Again, there's a lot of different ways that this could be interpreted. And I think that it kind of goes back to what we just discussed. You know, this could obviously be interpreted in a, in a hypersexual way, but it could also be, you know, we're standing on the verge of, you know, they talk about, 
in other albums, you know, let's take it to the stage, right? And there's a lot of that to come where it's, and I think that that's part of what it is too. It's like, you know, I think that getting it on can mean a lot of different things. And I think that it does in, in the world of Funkadelic the same way that I think that, you know, that soul means a lot of things, you know, and can mean several different things. I think that funk can mean several different things and means, you know, it's, it's one thing and everything at the same time. And I, one of the things I really love about this band is how they take those concepts and they're like, Hey, it's not, you know, we're not going to put anything. We're not going to pigeonhole anything. It's going to be, it's going to be whatever, whatever it is to you. Which is an awesome element of music. And I love often the more vague the lyrics, even if you're saying something, perhaps like the less uh, meaning that you're sort of imprinting into your lyrics, uh, the longer lifespan those lyrics are going to have. And then track six, uh, Jimmy's got a little bit, dot, dot, dot. I will say that this is also a super catchy song, kind of tough for us to talk about in like a, a PG friendly way, which, you know, is always kind of the aim here. But I will say that this song is able to approach the idea of questioning one's sexuality or at least the fluency of sexuality uh, in a really catchy way. And even though these lyrics now wouldn't really work out well, I think the song kind of does what it's supposed to do. And it gets us thinking uh, maybe about uh, approaching sexuality from a different perspective, or at least trying to encapsulate the mind frame of someone who is in that situation. And to put that like right after standing on the verge, which is obviously the name of the album, it's an important track to follow that up with. This is at the very least super brave. You know, I agree. I mean, the, the lyrics are, in a lot of ways are kind of indefensible when you, when you look at them in the lens of, of, of being 2021, but I don't know how many people in 1974 were talking about talking about somebody being a homosexual in a way that was not derogatory. And I, I think that some of these were, well, let me take that back. I think that some of the words in this can definitely be construed as derogatory, but you do not pick up any form of malice when you hear it. And I think that that may be something that kind of the distinction there. And it's such an interesting bridge between standing on the verge uh, and the Jimmy's got a little bit. And then we get into what I think might be my favorite funkadelic song that we've listened to across all of these albums, because it's the perfect combination of Eddie Hazel just ripping on guitar, even though this is more of like a, a soulful uh, guitar situation. Um, but then with that heady spoken word kind of deep thoughts with funkadelic type moments and the deep voice that is doing the spoken word, everything that he is saying is like one of those kernels of knowledge that, you know, I try to live, have live within me. The Oak sleeps in the acorn. He's talking about like the answer lies within the question and, Maybe I'm just not that deep, but this strikes me as really, really deep, and I eat up every second of it. I could listen to Good Thoughts, Bad Thoughts on repeat probably five times a day and be a better person for it. Every ending is a new beginning. Life is an endless unfoldment. Change your mind and you change your relation to time. I'm not somebody that, that will jump to and listen to lyrics intently, especially the first couple of passes through anything really that I'm listening to. So it takes a lot for lyrics to jump out to me. But some of the things that he's saying in there, right? Like, change your mind and you'll change your relationship to time. 
Like, what a great line that is. As you can find the answer, the solution lies within the problem. The answer is in every question. Can you dig it? So, yeah, George, I can dig it. I can dig it. I think that that's it's really powerful stuff. Another one was, you know, be careful of the thought seeds that you plant in the garden of your mind. Like how like potent is that line? You know, I mean, and, and that can be applied to absolutely everything that we do every day. It's the, you know, it's the entire that book, The Secret. That's it. That one line. You could, you know, skip the 400 pages. You know, like just read that one line. That's it. It's the whole book. And unlike The Secret. I, I don't feel like I'm getting fleeced after spending time with Funkadelic. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to commit to this philosophy of the answer lies uh, and the solution lies within every problem. To me, this just is kind of the distillation of Funkadelic. Like we're actually, we've got something to say. We're going to say it with some really great music. What is a Funkadelic? What is soul? Like this is the answer to those big questions that they posed on their first album. You know, and you had talked about earlier about how sometimes you feel like you are you are like writing, you know, inside the mind of of the person writing the music. And, you know, and I think that this good thoughts, bad thoughts is a great example of that. One of my absolute favorite lines in any in any of this music, you rise as high as your dominant aspiration and you descend to the level of your lowest concept of yourself. You know, to me, and you, you had talked about this in, a, in an earlier episode, it's like, therapy has now been distilled down to a single to a single two sentences and that's kind of it you know with this album if, if you haven't listened to it if you've never heard it if you haven't listened to it recently this is another one like maggot brain it would behoove you to just pause the podcast now go put it on listen to it this is an experience that you need to have musically uh, i can't say enough about this this is one of my absolute favorite albums of all time any artist any genre then we get to 1975's Let's Take It to the Stage. Uh, the campiness is going to go up a notch. Uh, we see more flourishes of heavy metal, I feel like, across this album. I will say that after I listened to this album for the first time, I was really impressed. And I then immediately went and listened uh, to Selling England by the Pound by Genesis because it just somehow, somehow I connected those albums in my brain and they are from a similar you know, kind of time period here, mid seventies, but it's just like just a really big production. And it's almost like this album is, is kind of like a universe unto itself. Now that said, the lyrics aren't saying quite as much across the album. Overt sexism of the seventies is a little more in the forefront, but again, each track is, is its own unique entity. Uh, I think it's a really great album, even though it ended up being a little lower on the list than some of the other you know, stunning albums. Also, goodbye, Eddie Hazel. Hello, Michael Hampton, who it turns out does a pretty good Eddie Hazel impression because I couldn't necessarily tell a difference uh, in too many spots. Yeah, so I mean, definitely welcome to Michael Hampton, uh, also known as uh, Kid Funkadelic. It was funny when we were talking on social media about this album, uh, our, our buddy, our good buddy, Dan, that actually lives not too far from me, talked about how Michael Hampton would show up at a, at a bar in New Hope in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's about 15 minutes from my house, and it's a, a bar called John and Peter's, and he would just show up while other people were playing and he would drag an amp on stage, plug in and just crush a solo and just, you know, and would be hanging out with the, hanging out with a band. 
Man, I would love to be in suburban Philadelphia at some random bar and have Michael Hampton show up. And most people would probably have no idea until he started playing. Yeah, I mean, it, there's because there's video video of, of this that happens. You can look up, uh, you know, uh, either Kid Funkadelic and John and Peters or Michael Hampton and John and Peters, and there you'll see the videos. And, uh, you know, kind of an unassuming guy, but he gets up on stage and plugs in. And you're like, oh, okay, well, there's <laughs> obviously this guy knows what's going on. Let's take it to the stage kicks off with good to your ear hole. And one thing that I noticed about this, uh, there's a little more singing on this album. It almost has a Stevie wonder kind of quality to my ears. And maybe that's just because Stevie wonder was one of the biggest musical acts across the entire world in the early to mid seventies. But I think that the comparisons are, are kind of apt. But it's like so many of these great songs, just the combo of the sizzling guitar and the bass and the drums, just everything comes together. Uh, and it's got so much, so much energy, but good to your ear hole. Uh, what a great way to start start an album. Can't think of a better way, really. To me, this was my favorite track by far on the entire on the entire album. I think that the that the groove on this is just deep and infectious. The chorus is something that when I listen to it, it's just I, I feel good things. It's one of those things that kind of makes makes your heart race when you listen to it. Deep, deep groove. Very, very fun song to listen to. Great way to start an album. When I first started listening to Let's Take It to the Stage. Oddly enough, I don't believe I'd heard this album at all uh, before doing before doing the podcast. And when it started with "Good to Your Earhole," I was like, "Oh man, here we go!" You know, maybe you know, maybe maybe we have the the next standing on the verge of getting it on. Uh, I don't think it quite developed to the to those heights, but but boy, this is a great way to start. Yeah, and even though some of these tracks are kind of goofy, they all, like I said, do kind of stand on their own. And it's not like there are really any throwaway tracks. Uh, Better by the Pound, track two, again, has that Stevie Wonder kind of vocal quality to it. The hi-hat is doing a lot of the work here, just creating energetic momentum, uh, but just super enjoyable track to listen to. And then we get into some uh, probably clever for the mid-70s, but in retrospect, maybe not the best. Uh, type <laughs> selections <laughs> with uh, Be My Beach. Uh, yeah, a little bit of wordplay. She's not the only sand at the beach. There's a whole lot of beaches. <laughs> okay, got it. All right, all right, we got it, we got it. Yes, totally. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's move along, let's move along. Uh, things are gonna get worse before they get better, buddy. Uh, track four, No Head, No Backstage Pass. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna give them the benefit of, of the doubt here and Maybe it means something that I don't think it means, but I will say this has kind of a heavy metal groove. Also uh, sounds a bit uh, like the sitar in the intro, uh, very orchestrated. Uh, So even though it's a joke song, like musical production wise, can't really complain about what's going on. And there is a lot going on here. I mean, sitar and heavy metal, like this is not the Funkadelic that we were introduced to uh, across their first couple of albums. Said, I know the drummer, can you let me in? Tell the guitar player I bought a friend. 
I don't think that there is any other way to interpret what this song is about. You know, it's, it, this is another one that I think that if it was put out in 2021, that just immediately everybody would be like, what are you doing? And I remember listening through to this album and listening to this and being like, Oof, like, you know, it's, it's a little cringy to listen to. But to your point, the music that is behind the basically indefensible lyrics, the music that's behind it is really interesting stuff. And it's something that Funkadelic is just really good at. Again, this is another, you know, kitchen sink type approach where here's something like a, you know, here's an instrument that you would normally hear in, in Eastern music that, you know, how can this be funk? But the same way that the that the saloon organ and, and you know, the other things that we've listened to in, in these albums are funk. This is too. They find a way to make it work. And that's part of their genius. Right. You didn't think a harmonica could be funk, but they proved you wrong. It definitely can be funk. So yeah, even even a little sitar influence can be funk. Uh, let's take it to the stage. The title track, just kind of classic funkadelic sound. Funk used to be a bad word. Say it loud. I'm funky and I'm proud. Talking about you, the Godfather, Godmother. A great rhythm guitar, just kind of clean. Vocally here, this did remind me of some of the stuff we had heard before, where they'll like work in kind of like a nursery rhyme uh, mention here or there, like a little Miss Muffet nod. I think they also reference Richard Nixon, the Tricky Dick. Kind of brought me back to America Eats Its Young, where the vocals started to get like a little goofier. And a little weirder, but uh, yeah, I mean, no complaints here. And it gets us into track six, Get Off Your Butt and Jam. That's not the real title. But again, I'm thinking my five-year-old might be listening to this podcast one day. At the very least, it's it's pretty great. And the uh, backstory about the guitar here, which just, just sizzles, is kind of interesting. Let's talk about the guitar solo. First of all, when you listen to the guitar solo, it's the, the, the person who is playing this just crushes it. guitar solo was performed by according to george clinton by a quote-unquote smack addict uh, a guitar player who had found his way into the studio he asked clinton if he could play for some cash and then according to george clinton he said he proceeded to play the solo like he was possessed and that definitely comes through when you listen to it um, you know soloing soloing over the entire duration of the song he received 50 bucks for his efforts and uh, without clinton ever learning what his name was so in a July 2009 interview with Vintage Guitar, guitarist Paul Warren, who if you are if you are somebody who has ever listened to Richard Marks or, or Rod Stewart, you might you might recognize that name. Uh, he said that he was the one that played the solo. And to me, this might be one of the most funkadelic anecdotes that I've that I've ever heard. It's tough to say that you're a control freak or have a ton of ego when you're when you're willing to let something like that happen. I mean, what a cool story that is. Well, this is clearly why Michael Hampton is comfortable just hopping on the stage in uh, suburban Bucks County <laughs> you know, outside of Philadelphia. He's like, well, I mean, at least I'm not walking in off the street here. So, yeah, but probably I mean, the coolest, certainly the coolest guitar from the whole album. So thank you, random guitarist from Richard Marks. 
guy I've never, yeah, ever thank, heard of. Right. Thank you, possibly Paul Warren. <laughs> yeah. And then in track seven, babe, baby, I owe you something good. It starts, and I literally was thinking Fiddler on the Roof when I heard this song for the first time. So again, we're not afraid to like go around the globe for different influences here. Even though it's orchestrated and you know definitely kind of planned out, there are heavier sounding parts. If you can go from Fiddler on the Roof vibes to like you know, Ozzy Osbourne vibes over the course of one song where you're singing to your baby, like that is pretty wild musicianship to say the least. Well, you know, what an interesting track that is. And then you get into Stuffs and Things, which, you know, this is this is Bernie Worrell in the rhythm section, once again, just completely on full display. My only gripe about this song, honestly, is that it's not longer. This song could have gone on for 15 minutes and I would have loved every note of it. I'm going to ease it on your feet. I'm going to shovel till I move. Perhaps George Clinton is ready to take a small step back, but Bernie Worrell's there, and his influence is definitely all over this album in in a way that I wasn't able to detect on some of the earlier albums. And yeah, I mean, he's a synth master. Stuffs and things reminded me of Frankenstein from the Edgar Winter group. And of course, from Fish, I would have to double check and see if that Frankenstein came out after Stuffs and things, or maybe we're, I think we're kind of in the same time period here. Uh, but the bass is incredible under the verses, in addition to all the keys and the synth that's going on. So just superb instrumentation uh, and it is worth noting that bernie Worrell, who was in the the band pretty much the whole time uh dude wrote a symphony when he was eight years old dude went to juilliard the incredible music school in new york city you imagine what his parents kind of thought oh maybe he'll be a concert pianist and uh, he is just crushing it in funkadelic he was also the only the second person to ever have received a Moog synthesizer. And I believe that it's a Moog that they're using in Frankenstein. So I would venture to guess and somebody in the audience, I'm sure can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I would venture to guess that this had to have come first because I just couldn't imagine that it was the guy from Edgar Winters and Bernie Worrell were the first two. And I mean, speaks to the fact that Funkadelic is a musician's band. There's an app on your phone that you can get. And it is like a, a, a handheld Moog synthesizer. And you can play around with it and make noises and make sounds and things like that. But when you do, you really gain a new appreciation for just how impressive the the people are that can use this in, in a way that makes these incredible sounds. You know, this guy gets this incredibly complicated synthesizer and is able to, to make something so cool come out of it so quickly. You know, it just it just speaks to the musicianship that that's that's present in all of these albums and, and with these musicians. It's just like also right around 1974, 1975, when the dead let Phil and his buddy Ned Lagan uh, do their sea stones, crazy <laughs> like synthesizer, crazy effects during set break. They're like, yeah, just, just play it in the middle, in the middle of the show. That'll be fine. Uh, but I love the experimentation that's obviously happening all over music in this time period. Uh, I think that the next track, it's called The Song is Familiar, has a traditional choir kind of sounding vocals 
but I really, really, really love it. Like even just the vocals and the chorus themselves, there's a song that I sing whenever I'm sad, feeling bad. It's just one of those things that attaches to your emotions. And when you're listening to it, it's just so smooth and so buttery. Uh, but then we get uh, kind of a relaxed guitar groove, even though I guess the guitar tone was a little iffy for you. I thought it was a pretty good combination. Yeah, for me, for whatever reason, this is I just could not get with the guitar tone on this particular track. Um, you know, and it's one of the few times where I feel like that the that in funkadelic music where the guitar actually kind of takes away from the track. Because I agree with you, I thought the I thought that the lyrical content was was really cool. You know, and, and I was into that. So it's it's surprising to me to find a song where I actually appreciated the lyrics more than uh, than than the tone of the music that was being played underneath. So, yeah, for sure. And when I was listening to the final track, uh, Atmosphere, the first thing I thought about 20 seconds in is this is going on the family's Halloween playlist in October because <laughs> we do sometimes listen to seasonal music and the organ here. It feels like Halloween to me almost has that uh, for our fish fan friends, like Paige in the beginning of Esther, when he's sort of playing like the, the pipe organ. And it just kind of immediately sounds like a little spooky kind of Vincent Price feel to the spoken lyrics. It's mainly just instrumental, but it's a really cool way to wrap up the album and kind of goes back to what I was saying where it's like, all right, Bernie, here, let's let's give you a few tracks here on this album and, and see what you can do with them. And he totally, totally delivers. So one thing that I would like to drop in here is that I had a conversation with my cousin, uh, John Baker, who is a very accomplished, uh, very, very talented musician, uh, has his own recording studio, like a guy that's very familiar with music, somebody whose musical opinion I really value we were having a text conversation about Eddie Hazel because I was trying to think of, you know, to me, there's a direct lineage from Jimi Hendrix to Eddie Hazel. And then from Eddie Hazel, it's like, I know that he influenced some other people, but I never really could connect like who it was that sounded like Eddie Hazel. And he sent me a text. It was like, you know, like at midnight or something like that. He's like, you know who Eddie Hazel sounds like Prince. And I was like, Oh my gosh. I was like, that's it. That's, that's exactly right. Exactly right. So I'm also going to make another plug here that we add Prince to the, to that lineup of, uh, of, of, of artists to, to dig deeper into, because I know that there's just tons of, of, of gems to dig into there. It would be sacrilegious if I did anything other than just immediately agree. So yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's another blind spot. I was talking about our podcast with someone and basically in a nutshell, deeper listening is like an opportunity to kind of fill in the gaps that you feel like, you know what, why don't I know every Prince album or how come I don't know a lot about Funkadelic or why didn't I listen to Pearl Jam after 1998? So uh, yeah, let's, let's give ourselves a little homework here for sure. Yeah, no, I'm into it. So leaving, let's take it to the stage and moving on to 1976. And we have an album called Tales of, of Kid Funkadelic. 
Uh, this album was essentially a collection of outtakes and I, I didn't realize that going in, but listening to the album in hindsight and knowing that it, the album makes a little bit more sense to me uh, with that in mind, um, you know, in a, in a band that frequently breaks new grounds and pushes the limit, this album almost seems like it tried a little bit too hard uh, to do that uh, to the point to where it, it almost didn't work. Uh, and in some places, I don't think it worked at all. It makes me wonder how I would have felt uh, about it listening to it at the, at the time when it came out. So it's 1976. You're right in the height of the disco era. And you can certainly hear that in the drumming. The things that I like the most about this album are when Michael Hampton really gets to show off his chops. So I can understand why the album was, was named essentially after him. The grooves in this album definitely seem more disco centric than funk to me. Uh, but I can definitely start to see uh, some of the, some of the seeds being planted for the upcoming 78 release that, that enjoyed a lot of the, and I guess maybe the most of their commercial success. It's not an album that we're going to get into, but to me, it's like a, this kind of paves the way for uh for that album but again i mean understanding that it's that it's kind of a series of outtakes i think this was probably one of the things that they did in order to satisfy some contractual obligations things things like that um but it's not to say that there's not some great stuff in it and that you know so what what, what was your take on this justin i kind of like the music across this album you mentioned the disco influence and you could definitely hear that but to me that's like forward momentum grooves that kind of imbue a little bit of energy into each track, uh, which it kind of needs because I feel like we're relying on that sexy crutch uh, lyrically with a lot of these songs. And uh, yeah, if you're talking about adult relations in the mid seventies, chances are uh, from our 2021 perspective, it's not always going to age all that well, Uh, but that said, (laughs) let's talk about track one. Uh, Great title butt-to-butt resuscitation. Like, where, where did we even come up with this? It's got, again, just like... Let's take it to the stage of a heavy metal start. Uh, then we move quickly into a hi-hat groove, the keys, a uh, little bit of an outer space vibe, and the chorus is upbeat. It's all the things we love about Funkadelic just kind of coming together in, in the same time. So a uh, pretty good album opener. I, I don't know what butt-to-butt resuscitation is, but I, I dig the music. And I feel like I could play this around the kids and not feel too guilty about it either. It's a fun track. I mean, it wasn't one for me that left like a lasting impression. The same way that with the other album openers, when you say the name of those songs, I immediately hear the groove in my head. When I hear the name Butt to Butt Resuscitation, I don't immediately remember what the what the song even sounded like. And then in track two, let's take it to the people, which the lyric is, let's take it to the people, let's take it to the stage, which reminds me of the last album. But I love the way that the staccato keyboard is copied by the guitar right away and kind of starts and finishes this song. So I think it definitely has some redeeming qualities musically. Everything is fair when you're living in a city. Everything is fair in a war. Everything is fair when you're living in a city. 
and that reminds me of just improvisation and like the conversation that you know they'll have between fish and Paige and mike and trey and musically even though this is studio it's not like we're improvising here i just love the interplay between all these different elements in the band here so uh, another pretty solid track to me no complaints about it yeah, you know, and it's and it's interesting that you mentioned that because I really do wonder with a lot of these records how much of the of what ends up on the album may be improvised in the studio. I kind of get the impression with a lot of the stuff that that it's that the approach that they take is that if something happens like while they're recording, they don't necessarily hit the hit the pause button. They just kind of keep going and see and see what works. One thing that I'm super excited about because we've been focused on these, you know, specific nine studio albums, two things I'm excited about listening to the rest of their catalog, because I was really kind of laser focused on our task, but also listening to some of their live performances, which I know the albums are out there, but from the early seventies, especially like, I can't wait to dig in here. Uh, Undisco kid track three, Bass led, funk groove, more kind of sex tinged lyrics, move your sexy body, really breaking ground here, a little synthesizer. We move on to track five. I'm never going to tell it. really love the lyrics here again we're in this uh, painting a picture of a relationship that's not going that well but we're not keeping it we're not telling our friends about it which seems like a particularly specific sort of weird george clinton hang up this because it covers like tracks across a lot of albums where it's like i'm in this relationship it's not great but i'm not going to admit that to my friends like i get a real group think vibe here maybe that's just part of being a a band that i don't know anything about but it did remind me of a couple of tracks on like the prior album uh, where we interrupt like the disco and the the party vibes and we kind of have a little bit more of an honest conversation but I just really love the power and the potency of like that Motown chorus when they drop it into the middle of everything else that's going on instrumentally. So big fan here of I'm never going to tell it, even though the idea of like, I'm in this bad relationship, it couldn't possibly have anything to do with me. It must be this other person. <laughs> of course, of course. It's always like, oh, it's, it's her, it's her. And, you know, there's like this overt, not that well-aged sexual tinge to a lot of the lyrics but for whatever reason this struck me as like well this also isn't that fair to have like such a singular kind of masculine perspective who knows maybe maybe that's just on me but something about this even though i love 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 the song something about the the content just kind of rubbed me the wrong way even though it just does seem to be kind of a sad relationship song i had the almost almost identical thought that you did and you know their songs they have they have songs that are just overtly degrading to women you know which unfortunately it kind of happens a lot with within their within their music and that really can kind of be a tough pill to swallow and you know i'm all about like the the psychedelic like freer mind vibe you know the overtly like misogynistic content for me that's that it's it's really not for me and it's and it's interesting this was the first time that i listened to that music through i guess that lens and i found it really interesting for myself just on a a personal note that that it was something that struck me 
struck me to the point to where I really like paused and thought about it for a while. And I think maybe that's a good thing for the time that we do live in is that, is that now we can listen to some of these things and through a different lens and, you know, through maybe a more mature uh, way of thinking and maybe a more advanced or evolved way of thinking and, and actually question, you know, question some of our, um, some of our, our preconceived ideas about, about, you know, about what we're going to talk about in, in music and, and what we're, what we're going to be all right with, with listening to. And even though that can be kind of complex and kind of challenging when we think, oh man, what, what can I talk about? I think it is just a sign of growth, you know, a sign of emotional intelligence, something that societally we're kind of all pivoting toward and individually everyone's on their own journey, I suppose. But that it was funny that this random track, which is kind of a sweet song, trip that off in, in both of us, as opposed to like, you know, no head, no backstage pass from the prior album, that this was the one where we like, wait a minute, <laughs> hold on. Uh, so maybe if we just don't have a lot of lyrics, maybe if we just focus on the music, maybe, maybe then things will age a little better. And that's exactly what we do here in track six, Tales of Kid Funkadelic. Love it. Talk about spacey, relaxed, more of like a palette than an actual song. A lot of synth, the sped up vocal effects. George Clinton loved that. In episode one, when we did our Pearl Jam deep dive, uh, we talked about how some of their songs that weren't like punk songs or that weren't ballads fit into this third category and it was just kind of like a tribal rhythmic vibe and that's what this reminded me of but i loved it like if i would put this on repeat and just play it over and over as i was making dinner and just have a great time or like something to listen to while you're doing something else for me i think about this particular track and it's 13 minutes of meandering psychedelia you know and and for me, I need to be in the same headspace as I would to listen to like ambient music to be listening to this. I mean that in a really good way, but what I found is exactly what you said. If I am on a hike or if I'm, you know, for on the rare occasion that I ride a bike, I know that's something that you're much more into than I am. But like, those are the type of headspace where, you know, if I'm doing something like that while I'm listening to it, like ambient music or something like this really, really fits that scene really well for me. So funny how music works that way. Yeah, If I play something that's a little too ambient while I'm making dinner and the family's around, I'll think, what is wrong with me? How did I get so weird? Why do I like what I like? But then I listen to the same thing yeah, on a mountain bike ride or while I'm getting ready for work with headphones. And I think this is the best music I've ever heard. And uh, thankfully for us, you know, Tales of Kid Funkadelic track six kind of fits that bill. And then I love the uh, closing track, How Do You View You? Really, really cool. And it's almost just one of these uh, songs where it's like, all right, I'm, I'm into the lyrics kind of self-reflection i mean in the title there how do you view you can you see what's going down in you even mentions ever know someone who takes personal the rain who sees a glass is half empty than half full 
reminds me of my favorite fish lyric up or down it's up to you from limb by limb like mm-hmm. just really cool and the fact that we've also got this reggae vibe and i think they're playing some some clavinet soothing vocal ahs in the background like for the mid 70s I'm a big fan of exactly what we've got going on here. It's a cool way to wrap up the album. You know, all in all, I I found the album to be, of all the ones that we listened to, this one might have been the the one that I connected with the least. Um, But it's not to say that there wasn't there wasn't a ton of things that I that I really did like about you know a lot of music that I liked, a lot of lyrics that I didn't. And then we get into the last album. We finally made it, John. Hard Jollies. This is an album that is not on Spotify. It's not on Apple Music. You got to go looking for it. It's on YouTube. Shout out to you for finding it so we could include it here. Uh, We'll put the link in the show notes. But if Tales of Kid Funkadelic were the the B-sides, the extra tracks that we had to satisfy our final record for our last contract, uh, Hard Jollies is the good stuff that we were saving up for our new record label. And they come out of the gates kind of swinging here. Uh, Coming Around the Mountain, track one. Reminds me of Dancing in the Streets. At least the drums in the beginning do. But if that doesn't say like, hey, mid to late 70s, disco-influenced music, I don't know what does. Coming Around the Mountain was, you know, the song, it just rips. You know, it's, it's, a, great way to, it's a great way to start. Uh, Michael Hampton, he just wastes no time showing off his skill set. And when I was listening to Coming Around the Mountain, what was going through my head is, man, I wish there had been more of this in Kid Funkadelic. And this is where I feel like, the same way that we talked about in episode one with it taking Matt Cameron a couple of, you know, a couple of albums to feel like he was a part of the band, you know, and Michael Hampton was really young when he was, when he was doing this, but this is, is where he feels like he is a part of Funkadelic and he's the one driving a lot of these tracks and, and kind of taking them to the places that they'll go. And I think these albums came out in a really short stretch of time on different record labels. So yeah, totally fits with the narrative of uh, Tales of Kid Funkadelic, kind of some of the outcast stuff where hard jollies is more the primo material i really kind of liked track two smoky vocally this might be one of the bigger earworms that's totally random uh, it certainly isn't one of their most popular funkadelic songs but the vocals just kind of sit with me looking back at you i've lost a lot you've got a lot miss you a lot i miss you just tortured when it comes to relationships here i think in george clinton's brain Uh, but i like the atonal guitar melody over the tight groove and this just kind of sounds like a, a good summation of funkadelic's sound here so no complaints yeah, none, none for me either, really. And, and I listened to this, and and I believe that this album is really where the the Michael Hampton, you know, kid funkadelic sound really becomes the funkadelic sound. And it's something that you know, one of the things that that's cool about this band is that if you listen to the self titled album that came out in 1970, and then you listen to this, they're vastly different records, and you know, vastly different sounding records. They still sound like funkadelic, but there's a lot of evolution that happens. 
I really enjoyed, you know, really, really the whole album. I thought that the whole album was just a lot of fun to listen to. And even though we've talked about some of these tracks on the last couple of albums being uh, examples of mid seventies music that has not aged well, I feel like they pull it off here on track three. If you got funk, you got style. It's almost like a inspiring female confidence sort of a vibe. When you got funk, you've got class. You're out on the floor moving your butt. Uh, but I love the <laughs> so pathetic. If you ever see me at a fish show, you'd be like, "Hey, dude, you could you go ahead and curse. It's fine. Like you don't have to keep it G-rated all the time." Exactly. I'm going to be like Justin. First things first. I need you to say ten cuss words in rapid succession, <laughs> like George Carlin style. But I I love the upbeat synth groove. Even if I'm not a disco fan, like I'm a fan of it through the funkadelic lens, to be sure. And then uh, hardcore jollies title track like this is the song to put on to convert someone who maybe is like funkadelic i don't know what's that all about it's like, do you like guitar yes i do, do you, <laughs> right do you like rock music yeah I, I do i do i feel like this would convert anybody it's heavy in like a Jimi hendrix and black sabbath just kind of coming together all those best elements uh spouting forth here in hardcore jollies this is for Michael Hampton what like Red Hot Mama or Good to Your Ear Holes is for Eddie Hazel. He, he starts to do it and in, in, in coming around the mountain. But I think this one is really the one where it's like, I, I understand listening to this, why they named the album after this song. Um, whereas in the last album, like Tales from Kid Funkadelic, like I'm like, I'm like, this was this was the one. Um, but, you know, with with this one, like he just he, he kills it. It is worth the time and the frustration of listening to music on YouTube. <laughs> if you're not like a subscriber or whatever, it could be it could be brutal. But this album is definitely worth you know the the frustration that it'll take to to listen to it. I was personally affronted when you sent me this YouTube link and you're like, all right, we're gonna listen to this. It's like what? Listen to an album on YouTube. Although if you go into the in, into the information on the video, you can like click ahead to each specific track. But yeah, we live in a charmed era because listening to this album on YouTube was really one of the hardest things I did uh, that day. <laughs> My, I, I would not have been cut out for eight track. That would have not been for me. Hundred percent agree. And then we get into Cosmic Slop, and I love you know the title track on the nineteen seventy three album. You were a bigger fan of the live version, dude. It's it's a great great track. Some of the lyrics kind of, as of course we would expect in a live performance, take a bit of a step back here, and it's more about the the groove, but. I mean, you could just put this on and convert anyone with a heartbeat, I think, to Funkadelic. It's, it's great and pretty weird that they put this live track into this new album, but this was their first major label. I think this was Warner Brothers that they moved to that they started off with here with that this album. Right. But uh, I love that they just grabbed something that was probably a few years old at the time and just said, yeah, yeah, we're also real good live. So if we come to your town, you should probably probably show up. I'm surprised that they put it on a release because it's the, the vocal mix, like the, the, the 
the vocals are way back there. You can barely hear them in a lot of times and, and they're mixed at different, the vocals are mixed at a different volume at different times. And I thought, I thought that that was a little bit strange, but man, does the, does the version of the song musically just rip. just so much fun to listen to that and you could just tell it's one of those things that you could just tell that the energy in the room when they're playing live has just got to be just magnetic yeah even though it probably would be a bit of a bummer to see you know p-funk and whatever incarnation it's in now because i've never seen them live just getting into them like i would still see them but if listening to that 2003 uh, fish sit-in that i had mentioned in the last episode is any indication like maybe maybe we should all just be listening to these early 70s live albums well really quickly uh-huh. <laughs> just just uh just to throw this in there as a, as a point of consideration um so george clinton has said that he has officially retired from touring but when uh p-funk was doing their farewell tour they teamed up in new orleans with dumpster funk and with george porter jr and played a show uh, i think they played more than one actually and that thing was a barn burner so it was just incredibly high energy, just awesome. All, you know, the, the whole thing was just was just insane. So if they do come back around, they have to be in their in their 60s, 70s, maybe older. But man, it was just the energy in the room was palpable. I can only imagine. Super jealous of that experience. Track seven, you scared the love anatomy. We get a metal riff and a Motown chorus. I feel like this is something not many bands could pull off, but I want to get on to the last track because I want to get on to ranking these albums because I like arguing about that sort of stuff but <laughs> Adolescent Funk <laughs> Soothing vocal groove a lot of synth thanks Bernie Worrell as the melody and also kind of a lot of bass heavy action on the bottom that's also pretty synthy just one of those perfect combinations of keyboard guitar and bass that we've come to love here so kind of a nice album closer uh, for what we are considering here in our purview the first nine funkadelic albums yeah i agree with you i mean what a what a cool track to to end this particular listening project on like you, I'm looking forward to at some point in the future of going through and digging into some of the later uh, albums. The next album that comes up is probably the one that, that had the most commercial success for the band. So I felt like this was, you know, I think that we both agreed that this is really a good spot to kind of cut off the project because from this point forward, people have probably heard a lot of, a lot of that music, but man, wasn't that fun going through these albums and, and really digging because there's so much gold to mine for and, and, and all of these records. It's so insane. And I, I do want to talk about kind of the hierarchy of these albums for us, but only because I really liked almost all of them. And even the ones that are on the bottom of my list are albums that I would happily, happily listen to. So we listened to nine albums, 1970 to 1976. Obviously, if you've been listening along, you know that we're going to have Maggot Brain 
and Funkadelic and Standing on the Verge of Getting It On kind of up in the top. Those are my top three. How do you feel about that, John? So for me, I kind of broke up my top tier into, because I rank these kind of as, as tier one, tier two, tier three. For me, I had to do tier 1A and tier 1B. And the reason why is because for me, Standing on the Verge of Getting It On is my favorite Funkadelic album. Maggot Brain is so close behind that it's, you know, to me, they are both just Desert Island albums. Um, And then tier 1B for me was the self-titled Funkadelic album and then Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow. You know, being those were my, those four albums for me were all in that, in that top tier. Yeah, and those were my first four albums. I think that Free Your Mind is like slightly below Maggot Brain and Funkadelic and Standing on the Verge of Getting It On. But those are four incredible albums. And then, you know, we get into the second tier. And for me, it's Hard Jollies and Cosmic Slop, even if, you know, maybe lyrically, especially on Hard Jollies, we're not saying a whole lot of super importance. Uh, but the music on Hard Jollies, the combination of the guitar and Bernie Worrell and just the juxtaposition of everything uh, just makes it a really, really listenable album. I listened to this album a ton, even though it was a pain in the butt on YouTube. Uh, that's how good this album was. But I also really liked Cosmic Slop. Then below that, the last three, let's take it to the stage. America Eats Its Young and Tales of Kid Fungadelic. I liked each of those albums. I would happily listen to any of these albums at any point in time. It's almost you know like a roulette wheel of Funkadelic. Anything that comes up, I'm going to be okay with. It's an incredible testament. I'm almost afraid to listen to what they did in the late 70s, even though you've been telling me this was 78's their most popular album. Like It's hard for me to imagine something being on the level of the first nine albums that we've heard. So I kind of like living in my little safe space here of 70 to 76 <laughs> Funkadelic. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a great time for the band and, you know, and I, we rank these very, very similarly, which I thought was interesting, you know, going through, I think that our initial iteration was almost identical. And I think that, that oh, after going back and doing some re-listens, we ranked them a little bit differently. May I compliment you on your fine taste, sir? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I love this guy. Thanks just like me. <laughs> you know, for me, there was the 1A and 1B. So, you know, standing on the verge of getting it on. Maggot Brain was second. Fuckadelic and then Free Your Mind. For me, in the second tier, I had Hardcore Jollies being, um, you know, being next in line after Free Your Mind, uh, which I think we both did. And then for me, mm-hmm. from there, it goes to Let's Take It to the Stage. And I think that it gets that. Uh, it, it gets there for me because of Good to Your Ear Hole and then also Stuffs and Things. Like that groove and stuffs and things is so good that, you know, even, even when there are some other songs on that album that may not have resonated quite as much, those two are so good that I, that I ended up ranking those a little bit higher than, uh, than what was next for me, which is cosmic slop, you know, rounding out tier three, we had the last, we had this, the very same for the last two it was America eats as young followed by tales of kid funkadelic uh, tales of kid funkadelic to me was, was the most difficult for me to, for me to listen to, um, not that it was all that difficult, but it was the one that I will return to the the least, I believe. But man, it was just a lot of fun g- going through all of them. I'd listen to all of them again. It was a super fun listening project. I think it's it's no mistake that this ended up becoming a two part podcast because there's just a lot to get into here, and there's you know there's a lot of history that goes along with it, and 
it's hard for me to be brief when talking about these albums because there's just so many things that I want that I want to compliment and talk about and hopefully convince other people to listen to as well, which is really the kind of the main purpose of doing this is to is to get other people to listen to it. Yeah, so much fun to literally for me discover a band I'd never heard of, even though I knew the name. And just love so much of it. I mean, to be honest, in episode one, it was kind of a grind to get through parts of Binaural and Riot Act and draw the differences between some of those Pearl Jam albums, which I ended up really enjoying. But this was just a pleasure. Shout out to you. And if it weren't for you and weren't for this podcast, you know, I still wouldn't have very strong opinions about nine Funkadelic albums. So I can't wait to (laughs) sort of move forward with the rest of their catalog. Now, we've pitched out a few future listening projects. I'm going to put you on the spot. What are we doing next? Are we going to do Animal Collective? Are we going to save that and do something else? What are your thoughts? No, I mean, listen, uh, Animal Collective is something that the only reason that I have any familiar familiarity with that band, I've heard the name forever. And I know that at one point, I want to say in the late 90s, I made an attempt to listen to one of the albums. It didn't quite click with me at the beginning then, but I know that it's something that you really like. And when we first started talking about doing this, you had recommended a couple of albums and I listened to them. And I believe that I listened to them in the right headspace where I was like, okay, like, all right, I see what he's talking about. So I think that's a great one to do next. I think that it'll be one that similar to me taking you through Funkadelic, maybe this will be a similar experience of you taking me through Animal Collective because I think that this is something that you know really well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's nice to give people a teaser to, to come back to the Deeper Listening podcast. We really, really appreciate uh, you guys taking the time to listen. Uh, If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and please feel free to leave a review. We have read them all. You can also find us on Twitter at Listen Deeper or on Instagram at Deeper Listening Podcast. We'd love to know what you think. We'd love to know what you like, what you don't. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next time about Animal Collective. As always, thank you to the incredible Thomas Wing for our theme music. Get into a better mood indeed. Funkadelic helps us do that, and Thomas Wing helps us do that. Check out his Bandcamp page at blackoutmakeout.bandcamp.com. There's going to be a link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.